Well, amen. Hey, if you guys got your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2. I appreciate Bill being here. I, uh, I grew up basically at Falls Creek with Bill leading us in worship the whole, the whole time. He used to lead all eight weeks, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, all eight weeks. And uh, that was when there was open air t- tabernacle and stuff, and the best seat in the house was near the fans, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so, anyways, appreciate him being here. It takes me back. Um, and hey, what, as you're turning to Ephesians chapter 2, one of the things that wasn't in the, the bulletin today is uh, visitation at 2 o'clock today. I appreciate those of you who came out last week. We had a great turnout, 2 o'clock, BBS follow-up and visitation. We're doing that again today at 2 o'clock. Some of you signed up. Some of you didn't sign up. But you're still welcome to come here at 2 o'clock and go out with us for about an hour or so. And we'll meet here at the North Door, so I encourage you to do that. Um, so Stephen and I have been here all of almost three months now, and uh, moving here, we knew we wanted to rent a house and not buy, you know, just kind of get the, the feel, the layouts, right, uh, the neighborhoods, the schools, this, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I was familiar with Enid, but, you know, didn't know what do we want to do house-wise, so we ended up renting, but now we had a tough time initially, and thanks to Tara Dalton, I don't know if she's here or not, um, it helped us find a house and everything, and we landed on a street called Shenandoah. And we found out very quickly, a lot of people don't know how to spell Shenandoah, and uh, we didn't ourselves. I mean, it took us a few times to try to get it, and it took me back to kind of a history class and everything, um, because not only Shenandoah, but all the neighborhood streets in our area, they are Civil War era references, all of them in that area. And the Shenandoah is a fascinating story. Now, most of you might be thinking about uh, the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia, which was a major strategical, important location for the Confederacy, but that's not what I'm talking about. There was a Confederate vessel during the Civil War known as the Shenandoah, and I've got a picture here of it. Now, the Shenandoah was originally a British merchant ship, but was later repurposed as one of the most feared commerce raiders in the confederate navy this little guy here was 230 feet long has 73 sailors and eight very large guns and the ship was commissioned in october 1864 and told to seek out and utterly destroy union commerce on the high seas hoping to cripple the North's economy in favor of the confederacy And under the command of Captain James Waddell, the Shenandoah journeyed halfway around the world doing just that, attacking Union ships. But the success, or the Shenandoah success, really came in the summer of 1865. In the summer of 1865, they wreaked havoc on the Union whaling fleet. And in total that summer, the Shenandoah seized six vessels... They burned 32 others, and they captured over 1,000 prisoners. Now, here's the thing. If you know your history, almost all of that that summer took place after the collapse of the Confederacy. The war ended in April 1865, and here they were still attacking in the summer of 1865. It was August 2nd, 1865, that Captain Waddle learned that the war had ended. Months after the war had 
gone over. This was well before Twitter and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. According to historians, after he learned about it, he quickly realized that his men were, were going to be tried as pirates now. If apprehended by the U.S. Navy. So he learned that they were in the wrong, and in order to avoid the rest, or the, being arrested, he ran along with his other raiders, but they would finally turn themselves in to British authorities on November 6, 1865, almost a full seven months after Robert E. Lee's surrender at Appomattox, which is also a street name in our neighborhoods. Now, I find that a fascinating story, because here they were, fighting their fellow citizens, believing there's still to be hostility between the two. When in reality, the war was over. And there was now peace between the two. And if you and I are not careful, we may find ourselves seeking to destroy each other, to wreak havoc on each other's lives, seeking to fight our fellow citizens of heaven, our fellow brothers and sisters, believing there to be hostility between the two because of ethnicity or nationality or denomination or knowledge or politics or skills or gifts, when in reality, in Christ, there is peace between the two. I want to introduce to you a new section in this book in Ephesians, and it really focuses in on the church in a specific way, and how the church, the body of Jesus, this multi-ethnic, multi-gifted, multi-generational group of people, how they are now united in Christ, how the nations in Christ are one. See, what Paul does is, what we've looked at thus far in this book, is he establishes the identity of the church, who we were and who we are now in Christ. We were dead, but now we are alive. We were sons of disobedience, but now we are sons and daughters of the Lord. We were darkness, but now we are light. We were non-children, but now we are children. He establishes who we were and who we are now in Christ. He establishes the identity of the church, but now he's about to establish the unity of the church. And if I could summarize this section that really begins here in verse 11 and continues all the way really through chapter 3, I would summarize it this way. In Jesus, hostility ends and unity begins. In Jesus, hostility ends and unity begins. This does not mean uniformity. This does not mean that everything is going to go very, very nicely and pleasant and there's never going to be any hiccups and there's not going to be any disagreements. Quite the contrary. But it is what Paul said in Galatians, in Christ Jesus. There's that word in again. In Christ Jesus, you, those of you in Christ, those of you who have placed faith in Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, you have clothed yourselves with Christ. It's no longer you who lives now, it's Jesus who lives in you. You now are the body of Christ. Verse 28, there is neither now, for those in Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's actually Galatians 3, not Galatians 1. 
all nations in Jesus are one. This is what Paul is saying. That our complete identity is wrapped up in Jesus, and so is our unity. It's all of him. He has supremacy over it all. In Christ, hostility ends and unity begins. Now you'll notice we're going to skip over verse 10 in Ephesians chapter 2, which was our theme verse for VBS, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But we're going to come back to that verse. So circle it, highlight it. We'll come back to it when we get to Paul's full discourse, very practical on how, because of our identity and unity in Jesus, we ought to live as children of light in this dark world. So let's look at verse 11, Ephesians chapter 2. This is what Paul writes. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man or one new person in place of the two, so making peace, and so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing or crucifying the hostility. Verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, when you study the natural world, you will discover the power of unity. For example, you and I have been driving around the road, down the road or we've gone to ponds and whatnot, and we've seen geese, right? Geese are everywhere. They leave their mess. We know about geese, right? Um, even on the golf course every now and then. Uh, we know about geese. Here's what many of us don't know. The scientists have discovered or estimate that the whole flock, a flock of geese, when they are flying in the kind of their V-shaped formation, they can fly about 70% farther with the same amount of energy than if each one of them was flying alone. Think about that. With the same amount of energy, when they're flying together in unity, they can fly 70% farther than if they were by themselves. That's the power of unity. 
And if you take Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University class, you'll hear him quote from Zig Ziglar a lot. And Zig Ziglar talks about Belgian horses. And he says, a Belgian horse can pull 8,000 pounds. One Belgian horse. That's powerful. But two Belgian horses that are the same size together, even if they've never met and they've never been trained together before, two Belgian horses together can pull 24,000 pounds, three times what they could pull alone. Now, if you take those same two horses and you train them for six weeks together, equally yoked, in complete unity, they can pull not twice as much, not three times as much, but four times as much as they could alone. 32,000 pounds. That's the power of unity. And the same is true of the church. The New Testament makes it very, very clear. If the church is going to do and be what it was created to do and be, for we are a new creation in Christ, if we're to do and be what we are created to do and be on earth as it is in heaven, to be successful in that, to do it well, then unity is a must. And this unity is powerful. For example, John chapter 17, we are invited into this intimate prayer with Jesus and the Father, and Jesus prayed that you and I would be one, just as he and the Father are one. Just as he and the Father are one, he prays that we would be one. And he goes a step farther, he prays that we would be perfectly one. He prayed for our unity. Why? But he goes on, so that the world, so that the world may know that the Father in heaven sent Jesus That the Father in heaven loved the world just as he loved his only begotten Son. So how will the world know who Jesus is and who Jesus is from? They'll know by the unity of the church. The unity in the gospel. Paul would even say in Philippians that when we are walking in this kind of unity, we will strike fear in our opponents. And this kind of unity in the gospel will make known to them our salvation and their destruction. It'll make it evident that we belong to God and they do not. That's the power of unity. But for there to be unity, you and I must know and accept and believe that hostility, which keeps us from unity, has been crucified in Christ. Which brings us to this passage in Ephesians. Where Paul says that in Jesus, the wall of hostility has been broken down. It's been destroyed. It's like the falling of the Berlin Wall, like it's been destroyed, it's been knocked down. He has killed the hostility between the two, and he has made in its place one new man, a new creation for the individual and for the group. Now, I have a replica of the temple in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. Now, this temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and the only remaining piece of this temple is the Western Wall, which is the Wailing Wall, right, where you see many Jews praying even today and weeping over their destruction of their temple. But this was a replica of that temple in Jesus' day. And what I have highlighted there or circled is this wall. And within the temple in Jerusalem, the Gentiles were not allowed to approach any closer than that wall right there. 
That was the dividing wall that reminded the Gentiles or foreigners or unclean Jews that they were excluded. They were outsiders. They were not welcome. And this wall, this four and a half foot wall was put up to remind them of that. And on that wall, there was a warning inscription that prohibited non-Jews under penalty of death from proceeding any further. So literally, this four and a half foot wall that says, if you're a Gentile, don't come in any closer. You're excluded. You're an outsider. You're not a citizen of the commonwealth of Israel. You don't belong. Now, Paul is writing to a predominantly Gentile audience, a non-Jewish audience, who don't live in Jerusalem, but no doubt all his readers understood the notion of what Paul is declaring. And what Paul is declaring here is that all of that junk, all of that hostility and division in Jesus is obsolete. It's no more. It's abolished. It's done away with. In Christ, there is something new in its place. There is one person. And all those in Jesus have rightful access to the Father. They can actually approach the most holy of holy places, as we're told elsewhere, with boldness. As one commentator said, in Jesus, there is no Jewish boundary markers that demarcate the insiders from the outsiders. And the Jews needed to hear this well, he goes on to say, that there are no privileged races in the family of God. And you and I need to hear that there are no privileged denominations in the family of God either. If we can believe it. The commentator goes on to say that in his body, Jesus annulled the entire law system as the means of relating to God or of identifying who were members of God's covenantal community. Jesus, as we're told in Romans and Galatians, is the end of the law. No one comes to God via the Jewish code because we could not. No one could uphold it. Righteousness, we're told, comes only by faith in Christ. Even God said there was coming a day when he would judge those only circumcised in the flesh. What God was going to prove by sending Jesus is whether or not you really had the faith of Abraham. Thus the Gentiles in Christ, through his blood, they have been brought near. Just like the believing Jews in Christ. Just as Paul said in Galatians, and as he'll say later in this book, as we read in Ephesians 4, in Jesus you are one. You're one. You're one. You're one. You're one. Outside of Jesus, we're excluded, we're separated, we're foreigners, we're outsiders, we're hopeless, we're without God. There is this dividing wall. But in Jesus, we are brought near. And that wall is destroyed. Quite literally, in his flesh, crucified. And all people, all nations become one. Thus, in Christ, hostility ends and unity begins. It doesn't mean uniformity. Paul would argue this in 1 Corinthians 12. We're like a human body. We're one body, but man, we are made up of multiple parts. It doesn't mean complete agreement, but it does mean unity in Jesus because of Jesus for Jesus. But the question is, is what does that really look like? What does this hostility between Jew and Gentile really look like in in Paul's day? And what does this hostility look like in our day that 
it should come down in Christ. Well, let me give you this example. In the early 1900s, Rwanda faced European colonization. And after 15 years of this colonization, the people of Rwanda were given identity cards based off what tribe they belonged to. And there's really three tribes. And so, if you belong to this tribe, you got this card. If you belong to this tribe, you got that card. If you belong to this tribe, you got this card. And in kind of our context, it might be like, okay, if you belong to Oklahoma, you get this card. If you belong to Missouri, you get this card. But this is what they did. And immediately, many of them have gone on to say, who are from Rwanda, that immediately it caused division and separation. Before that, there were just the people of Rwanda, but now there were people of what tribe? And so began a long history of this division across the board, and it eventually grew into hatred and hostility between the tribes. And this led into politics and, and civil war and so on and so forth. But it boiled over in 1994 when Rwanda experienced a genocide almost like we've never seen before. And here's a few pictures of the genocide. Something like 800,000 people died in 100 days. Nearly a million. And this was not, you know, big bombs going off, that kind of stuff. This was personal between the tribes. It was up close and it was intimate. Many of the deaths happened by machete or by hands. There was deep division and hatred, hostility towards each other. And in Rwanda, there was a man named Andrew, and Andrew said that his village was a place of peace and harmony, where people, they came together for weddings and other ceremonies. But in 1994, Andrew said, things changed all of a sudden, and people just started killing each other. He said people had lost their minds. And one of the many scenes of carnage was near Andrew's village. There, 50,000 people were massacred in just eight hours. That's the size of Enid. They were massacred in this vocational school where these families had taken refuge. Today, the, the site is preserved as a genocide memorial. But in Andrew's own village, neighbors turned on each other. And neighbors turned on Andrew's family, specifically his wife's family, because she was a targeted tribe member. And she survived, but they killed her father, her mother, and her five siblings. And that mob that came into Andrew's neighborhood and killed his wife's parents and family, part of that mob, there was a man named Calix. And Calix was best friends with Andrew growing up. And after all of that, there became hatred between the two. The friendships that characterized the villages like Andrew and Calix's disappeared. There became hostility. And Andrew said he had a deep hatred for Calix and could almost not even think about him anymore. But after the genocide ended, there were too many genocide perpetrators for the courts to try. So what the 
government did is they instituted a kind of community justice courts where the citizens of each community would decide who's guilty and who's innocent. And in Andrew's village, Andrew implicated Calix and said, he's guilty. These are two guys who grew up together. They were best friends, played together. And now one of them had killed his wife's family. Now Andrew is sending him to jail. Calix would spend 13 years in prison. But during that time and thereafter, God grabbed a hold of both of them. And he began to tear down the wall of hostility. And he began to break both of them. And he wrecked both of them. And he changed both of them. Both became strong believers in Christ. Radically new creations in Christ. And through that and their relationship, there came reconciliation, forgiveness, and a new kind of friendship. And here's a picture of Andrew and Calix today. Both of them now are involved in the church. They even go and visit genocide perpetrators who are still incarcerated, talking with them about Jesus and reconciliation and forgiveness. Where there was once hostility, there is now unity. Where there was once two, there is now one. In other words, in Christ, hostility ends and unity begins. Solely because of the power of Jesus in our lives. Outside of Jesus, there's hostility between us and God and between each other for all sorts of different reasons and issues. For the Jew and Gentile in the church, it was circumcision, but for us it could be something else. But the war is over. And if we're not careful, we're going to just be fighting our fellow citizens now of the same country, our fellow brothers and sisters. By and in and through his blood, Jesus has brought peace. He himself is our peace. In his flesh, he is crucified. He's done away with the wall of hostility. He's brought a new identity, and he has brought unity. And you and I are to live that identity. We are to live in that unity now. There's an interesting scene in John 20, verse 17. Where Jesus, after his resurrection, he tells Mary this. He says, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. He says, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God." Now that's fascinating because throughout John's gospel, we are excluded in a way from the intimacy between Jesus and the Father. But now in Christ, post-resurrection, in him and through Christ, you and I are invited to be a part of that intimacy. Not as our old selves, 
but as new persons who now carry the identity of Jesus, who are now called to possess the same unity that Jesus has with the Father and the Spirit, the kind of unity that he prayed for, the kind of unity that brought Andrew and Cadix together, the kind of unity that changes the world. We are now invited into that relationship of unity, into the family of God where there is no more hostility. There was no, well, you're this and I'm that. You were one in Christ. You're to live that unity out. Standing firm in the gospel, on the gospel, for the gospel. You say, well, how do we do that? Well, Paul would tell us in Philippians 2, after talking about that unity, basically be like Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He emptied himself. He became the form of a servant. He literally laid down his life for us. Live like Jesus. Live as children of the light. Live light. Because of your identity in Christ, because of your unity in Christ, live that identity and live that unity. With heads bowed, eyes closed, I'm going to invite Bill and the team forward. And for some of us, what's keeping us from having unity with our brother or sister in Christ is our unwillingness to forgive, our unwillingness to reconcile, and maybe God's calling you right now to forgive somebody in your heart. begin to take that first step towards reconciliation maybe they said something maybe they did something maybe they didn't say something or didn't do something but that relationship is broken but we need unity doesn't mean you're going to agree on everything doesn't mean there's going to be perfection in that relationship but we need unity because it's powerful because we can't do the Christian life together it wasn't designed that way we're in this together and for the others of us as a man I'm at peace with my brother and sister in Christ then pray that we would be perfectly one as Jesus and the Heavenly Father are perfectly one pray that not just for our church and churches here in this community but throughout our culture throughout the nations For there to be unity, hostility must end. And we must recognize that in Christ, it has been crucified. So pray for it. And even as I pray, if you need to come forward, you say, man, I I still don't have a right relationship with God. Maybe today is the day of your salvation. Because outside of Christ, we are hostile in our hearts and minds towards God. But in Christ, he himself is our peace between us and God and us and one another. So come today, be saved. We'll talk to you about what that looks like, what that means. For others of you, maybe you just want to join the church. For others of you, you want to come down here and pray for your brother and sister, for our church, for yourself. But I'm going to ask that you stand with me right now. I'm going to pray for us. And then after that, they'll lead us in this song. Father. We continue to come to you in this place. We thank you for who you are. 
Lord, we thank you that while we were enemies, hostile, in our hearts and minds towards you, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For you so loved us. You were so moved by your love and your grace and your mercy to come after us. To step down into the darkness. And it was your will to crush Jesus for our iniquities, for our transgressions. It was your will for he himself to be our peace. That by and in and through his blood for you to draw us who are far away near. Father, may we recognize that in Christ, hostility ends between us and you and us and one another. It's no longer this denomination versus that denomination. This side of the aisle or that side of the aisle. It's whether or not we're in Christ. For you will bring judgment on anybody who is circumcised only in the flesh. We can say a lot of things and show a lot of things externally, but if we are not inwardly born again, we are not your children. So Lord, bring that person to salvation today. Lord, if there's somebody we need to make peace with, whatever that looks like, bring something like what happened with Andrew and Calix when it seemed irreversible, the hatred and the division and the separation. You brought something new out of the old. Bring healing, bring forgiveness, bring peace, bring unity, for it is powerful. In Christ's name I pray. As they lead us, you come.